Well, good morning. It's great to welcome you uh, to Alliance Bible Fellowship uh, today and uh, to, to, to be enjoying this time of worship and, and celebration in, in the name of Christ uh, together. We often will hear news in terms of, of good news and, and bad news. And for, for example, yesterday, the, the good news, we set the attendance record, 34,600, but then there was some some bad news, but I'll, I'll just leave that alone, okay? Uh, but then also, sometimes we hear about things, uh, bad news, and then some really bad news. For example, the story is told of a man who went to see his doctor for uh, an annual physical, and after some tests, the, the, the very next day, the man returned to his doctor, and who he found had a rather somber look on his face. Well, the doctor said, I have some bad news, and some really bad news. Well, what's the bad news? The man asked. I'm sorry to tell you that you have a rare disease and you only have 24 hours to live. 20, 24 hours to live? That's the bad news? What's the really bad news? The man asked. The doctor replied, I've been trying to call you since yesterday. <laughs> well, I have some bad news and some really bad news for you this morning. The bad news is Jesus came to this earth to bear a cross. And the really bad news is Jesus came to this earth to bring his followers a cross. We continue um, today in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 8, which is rather interesting. The, the Gospel of Mark, the word gospel means good news. So, so maybe, just maybe, Jesus bearing a cross isn't bad news after all. And maybe us bearing a cross isn't bad news either. Peter has just declared the truth of all ages. They, they're up in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked the question, do people say to I am? And who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Finally, someone, a human being, gets it. All the training, all of the teaching, all those object lessons, you know, healing and driving out demons and walking on water and calming storms and raising people from the dead. All those things that accomplished their primary purpose. The disciples finally understood Jesus was none other than the Christ, the Son of God, the very hope of the world. I mean, that I don't know, that sounds like awfully good news to me, so, so what's the bad news? Well, now that they understood who He was, now they needed to understand why He came. They needed to know His mission. And there's a problem with that, you see. The, the, the Jews were sure that they knew what the Christ would come to do. They'd looked for Him for centuries. He would be a, a deliverer, not from sin, but, but from those nasty Herods and the tyranny of Rome. And He would be a strong military and political ruler, a king who would lead the Jews in victorious conquest over their oppressors. That, that's what they were looking for, which is why when, when Peter made this magnificent declaration, Jesus warned his disciples, don't tell anyone that, that I'm the Christ. Why? Well, because they had this view, this wrong view. If, if they know that I'm the Christ, they'll, 
they'll take me by force to be their political military king, and that's not why I came. I came to deliver them all right, but I came to deliver them from their real enemies, sin and death. I came to deliver them from oppression, all right, but from the oppression of the evil one. I came to be their, their king, all right, but my kingdom is not of this world, at least not, not yet. My kingdom is within. I came to rule in their hearts. They're confused about the kind of kingdom I came to bring, and, and frankly, the people to whom I came to bring it. So, so don't don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. It'll just cause problems and potentially derail the mission. This, this was the reason that we've been seeing over and over in the Gospel of Mark that so-called messianic secret. Keep it secret. It'll just mess things up. But, but now we're going to find when the disciples finally discover his identity, they're going to try and derail the mission. Since you know who I am, disciples, let me tell you what I, the Christ, came to do. We read about it in Mark chapter 8. Here's, here, here's the bad news. Or is it, really, is it really bad? Let's read verses 31 to 33. Who do, who do people say, I am? You, you, you're the Christ? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be and be killed. No wait, no wait, no wait, no wait, just a minute. That is not the job description of the Messiah. Somebody's got this wrong. Begin after three days, he rise again, and he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter said, "Nope." Took him aside and began to rebuke him and. Turning around and seeing his disciples, they're, they're, they're hanging out. They agree with Peter. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, or more literally on the things of God, but man's. Bad news, disciples. Here's my mission. I came to, I, I came to die. But... But not only that, here's some really bad news. Not only did I come to bear a cross, I came to give you a cross. In other words, in other words if, you, if you want to follow Jesus, you better look good on wood. Look at it with me, verses 34 and following, and summoning that ever-present crowd with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, you want to be my follower? must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. <laughs> now wait, you get, this, you get this wrong. What do you mean? What is this losing my life thing? Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's contradictory. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will, well, he'll also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. It's bad news, which we call good news. 
But then there's really, I have some really bad news for you today. Let me give you the outline of this entire passage. Jesus came to bear his cross, verses 31, 33. And by the way, that's as far as we're going to get. So let's look at the good news. And then we'll see Jesus came to bring his disciples across. We won't get to that until later. Here's my question for you. I need you to ponder this. Is this all, is all of it good news? Well, yeah, well, I mean, we understand the Jesus' cross work is good news. I, but why is it then that we see our cross bearing as bad news? In fact, why do we have those running around suggesting that there is no cross for followers of Jesus today? Become a follower is just health, wealth, and prosperity for you. Have they not read the Bible? That's next week. This week, we'll begin with Jesus' cross. Next week, we'll look at ours. Come back if, if you dare. In these verses today, we're going to see the plan of God in verse 31. That's, we're going to spend most of our time there, just so you know. When I say our second point, I don't want you to pass out. We see the protest, or you could say, call it the rebuke of Peter in verse 32, and then the response or the rebuke of Jesus in verse 33. And let's begin with that plan of God. The disciple, uh, he says, this, disciples, is, is the mission. This is what Christ came to do. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer Many things I've been telling you for weeks now that Mark 8 is about both the high point and the turning point of the book. From this point on, Jesus is no longer going to focus on the crowds. He will focus on his disciples, preparing them for his inevitable coming departure. A departure which, by the way, they never seem to really get, at least not until after the resurrection. See that in living color today. Jesus right now is... Caesarea Philippi is going to make his way. Luke says, resolutely, this is it. Make his way to Jerusalem and all that awaited him there. This is the first of three times, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, that Jesus spoke clearly of what awaited him. It's not what they expected. This is, the, this is right. Suffering, death. We don't even know what this resurrection thing means. Mark says he told them plainly. I mean, there's no parables. There's no mystery here. He spelled it out for them. Again, he does so three times. They're called his passion predictions. Passion from the Latin, which speaks of suffering. His suffering predictions. First one we just read in Mark chapter 8. The next comes in chapter 9. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, but he didn't want anybody to know he was there, all right? They're, they're, they're making their way back down. I, I don't want them to know we're here. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. I mean, that seems pretty clear to me. What didn't they get? But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Third time in Mark chapter 10. They were on the road. Now, now they're, they are on the road to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem. And, he, and so he said, you got to prepare them one more time. And he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. Tim saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and listen, this is, this is it. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will 
hand him over to Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. He's told them over and over about his coming passion, which always included the resurrection, but they never seem to... They never seem to get this. In fact, it's kind of interesting, but after the Last Supper, uh, Jesus just, it's the night before his crucifixion. It's right at the point of his betrayal, and Jesus says, it, it is time that I go. And, and Thomas kind of scratches his, his, head, his head and says, so, like, where are you going? He's arrested. They all fled, deserted him. Denied him. Three days later, when he rose from the dead, the women who were, had gone to the tomb, they came back to report that they had seen him, and the disciples basically say, you're out of your mind. Luke 24, he's on the way to Emmaus with those two disciples and began explaining to them everything that was supposed to happen to the, the Christ. But we read, these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. What did they get? Jesus gave them a news, veritable news report concerning his death, complete with time, place of death, instrument of death in another place, perpetrators. He names his murderers, the time of his resurrection. He gave all of that to them before it ever happened, and they still didn't get it. Sharp guys that they are, but <clears throat> before we're too hard on them, let's remember most people don't get it nor do they believe it today. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1 speaks of the cross as foolishness to those who do not believe. Be thankful that God has revealed this truth to you. Listen to me. You never would have believed it either. And by the way, how did Jesus know all of these by the way, let me just stop right here just a minute. Every once in a while, it's criticism is rightly, I get it, rightly leveled against me that I don't have like a lot of application in, in my sermons. I know that, okay? But I just want to tell you right now, right, right now, this sermon is about Jesus. It's not about you. Next week, we'll talk about your cross. How did Jesus know all of the details about his death anyway? Seriously, I mean, this does read a bit like a news report. Did, did, did he really, this is the question that is asked, did he really say all these very specific and very detailed things? I mean, many pages, tomes have been written about this particular passage and its authenticity. In fact, I, I told you a few weeks ago that we believe the Bible, that all of it is inspired all of it is faithful and trustworthy, but some come to this passage and say, no way. Boltmann, Rudolf Boltmann, for example, flatly denies this. Says, there's no way that Jesus could have known all of this ahead of time. Others try to find, maybe there's something written in Jewish literature. I don't know, maybe the Old Testament, I don't know, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53. I don't know, that uh, talks about this suffering Messiah that would have this kind of detail. You know, like maybe Jesus read it somewhere. Still others say that while Jesus here predicted his death, Mark added these details after Jesus was resurrected. I've got an explanation for you. Try this one on for size. 
Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and as God in the flesh, he knew who he was, he knew why he was there, what he would do, and how it would unfold to the smallest, minutest detail, because all of that proves that Jesus was who he said he was, and he accomplished what he came to do. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Stop right there. Well, Peter had declared him the Christ. Jesus says, you know this, that the Son of Man, and he uses his favorite title for himself. In fact, there are 14 times that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in this book. No one, no one else does. The Son of Man is a more veiled reference uh, of the Messiah comes out of Daniel chapter 7. But when you read Daniel chapter 7, that's his appearing in, in glory. And so that doesn't seem to fit. And Son of Man also, you see, fits his humanity that he, in his incarnation, took on flesh. And it, it fits his ability to suffer. In fact, most of those 14 times refers to the Son of Man suffering. He must, he must s- suffer. What does that mean? Must. Well, that's, that's that bad news thing you're talking about, Scott. He, he didn't want to go, but he had to go. This is just heroic determination. Didn't want to, had to. Not, not exactly. He must go because this is the divine imperative it was the divine decree of the triune God that Jesus come to earth, that he go to Jerusalem, that he suffer and die for the sins of humanity, and that he rise again the third day. What we read here is Jesus' human response to divine imperative. He must go as the God-man to fulfill divine mandate, divine decree, divine fiat, because God had no other backup plan. This must came thundering from all eternity past. It was the unalterable plan of God set in motion from before the foundation of the world. I want you to hear that. That Jesus, when he created this planet, knew that he would die for you. Must is followed by four things that he must do. First, he must suffer Many things. It's important that we understand the suffering of the cross, all according to divine decree. Yes, even Jesus going to the cross was according to God's plan. This did not take him by surprise. This is not plan B because plan A didn't work out. I've got some verses to prove that for you. Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit is descended on the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching his first message, and he says these incredible words. Men of Israel, listen. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. And we know now, we've been looking at it for a year, all these miracles that Jesus has been doing, we know he's been attested by God. We know who he is. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death. It's impossible for him to be held in its 
power, predetermined plan and foreknowledge. He knew what he was going to do. Two chapters later, Peter and, and John have, have been commanded not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. They've been, and been threatened. They go back to the church. And so now in chapter 4, the church is praying. These are words they pray to God. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. He's the Christ. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the, the peoples of Israel, they are all against him to do what? Whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They didn't do anything to Jesus that they weren't supposed to. Isaiah 53, very familiar passage. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten of God. God smote him. God afflicted him. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by scourging we're healed. All of us, sheep, gone astray, each of us turned our own way. But the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And the Lord, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Who crushed Jesus? The Lord. It's his will to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render, if Jesus would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see offspring. He would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand, and the result of the anguish of his soul he will see and be satisfied by the knowledge of the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, and he will bear their Iniquity. So the point is, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer because it was the predetermined plan of God that he go. It was in this way and this way only. Don't miss this, that there could be redemption for sin. He must go per divine decree and suffer many things. We've seen rising opposition in this book. There was an indication as early as Mark chapter 3 that governmental leaders and and religious leaders, Pharisees and Herodians, were plotting to kill him. Okay, we, we get that they're plotting, but here, this is the first time we see that his death would not be his defeat. It would be his victory, mission accomplished. That's why he came. Do you understand that? Do you understand that when God created this planet and created people, He knew we would rebel and He knew He would send His own Son to die? Do you get, I don't get that. Suffer many things, you have to understand that there's more to His passion suffering than just the pain of crucifixion, as painful as that was, it is true, crucifixion, his crucifixion included nudity and impaled hands and feet, a spear thrust in his side, the rough, unfinished wood scraping against the raw, fresh wounds in his back, gasping for every breath, gasping for air with every breath. We will talk about that when we come to the crucifixion at the end of the book. It was at least as horrible as the passion of the Christ. But not only was there the suffering of the cross, suffer many things. There was the betrayal by Judas, one of his own. There was the arrest 
by religious leaders, the desertion of the disciples, the false accusations made against him, uh, the, the illegal trial, the purple robe, the beating, the scourging, the slaps in his face, the crown of thorns, the mocking, the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, and then there was that separation, that momentary separation never before experienced that caused him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would suffer, you see, many things. But, but knowing that... He created the world anyway. And, and knowing that, he must go. And he did. Second, not only must he suffer, he must be rejected. Interesting word. Re- rejected. The stone that the builders rejected, that's the word, has become the chief cornerstone. Rejected by elders, chief priests, and scribes. That's referring to the Sanhedrin, Jewish ruling, religious ruling body of the day. The elders were the lay leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, primarily within that group of 70 rulers, elders. The chief priests were the priestly aristocracy, including the family of the high priests, who were all Sadducees at this time. And the scribes were considered to be experts in interpreting the law of money. In other words, they're experts like on the Bible. This was a religious ruling group, and they would reject Jesus. Would you stop and think about that with me for just a moment? The suffering and death of the Son of Man would not come as you might expect at the hands of godless, wicked, pagan people. Isn't that what you'd expect? Not, not religious, not his chosen people. It comes at the hands of the religious. It is not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God, but humanity at its best. His death will not be the result of an accident or momentary lapse of human character, but rather the result of careful deliberation from respected religious leaders who will justify their actions under the highest standards of morality and and Mosaic law, and and they, they will see themselves in doing so as doing a service to God. Jesus will not be hunted down and lynched by an enraged mob or beaten to death in a criminal act, but he will be arrested with official warrants, tried and executed by political and religious Leadership, what's my point? Even the best of humanity would crucify the Son of God. So would you. In fact, you did. And so thirdly, he must be killed. Jesus spoke of it plainly. He would die. This would have confused the disciples, okay? Going to Jerusalem and suffering a little, we, we, we get that. I mean, I, there's going to be a little pain before gain, right? I mean, you're, you're going to take your rightful place as king. There's got to be some kind of battle going on. But, but, but die? That's not in the job description. That doesn't fit. The Messiah won't die, will he, Jesus? We understand he must die. He was, this side of the cross, we understand he was the perfect spotless sacrificial lamb of God. There would be no other way by which the sins of the world could be atoned. No, there's no other way. I'm going to come back to that. No other way. The author of the book of Hebrews would later write a verse that we're all familiar with. Without shedding of 
blood, there is no forgiveness. It's not going to happen. Jesus himself, after those three passion predictions, he's going to say, listen, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And, and then Paul, in his great treatise on, on salvation, says those very familiar verses that we know in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, rebellious sinners, Christ died for us more much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Jesus must die to save us from God's righteous wrath. It is the way, the only way of salvation. It is why he came. Good news is he didn't stay dead. See, the fourth thing that he must do is rise from the dead. After three days, only God would be so bold as to predict his own resurrection. Only God would be so bold as to suggest exactly how long he would stay dead. He must go. He must suffer. He must be killed. But he must, must, must be raised the third day. The resurrection is absolutely essential to the gospel. Notice that all three passion predictions ended with the with the. Resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you present the gospel and you don't include the resurrection, you have not presented the gospel. If Jesus did not rise, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this prediction would have been a lie. If Jesus didn't rise, we'd still be in our sins. If Jesus didn't rise, we would have no hope for future resurrection. But he did rise. Not only did he rise, he said that he would and when he would. So they should have known. But, but they didn't. They were stuck on this suffering and, and dying thing. And they, they saw it as bad news, which brings us then to our second point. Don't worry, don't to pass out. We're almost done. The protest of Peter, Peter especially saw this as bad news. Remember, Peter's a guy that just made the profound declaration a few verses ago, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus responded in, in Matthew's account, and you're Peter, you're the rock. On that confession, we're going to build the church. And, and by the way, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, and Peter swells up with pride, I am now the mouthpiece of God. <laughs> and Jesus says, okay, you know who I am. Let me tell you my mission. I'm going to suffer die in Jerusalem, and <laughs> Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. I mean, can't you see Peter doing that? Kind of puts his arm around Jesus, takes him aside while the disciples are back there. They're listening in. Now, Lord, that's not right. Listen, that's not going to happen while I'm around. Actually, it's a little stronger than that. The word for rebuke is an especially strong one. It's a word that's typically used for rebuking demons, Mark says, Jesus, Mark, Mark says that Peter rebuked Jesus in just that way. Matthew, Peter says, God forbid it. Literally, not going to happen to you, Lord. It's in the double negative for emphasis. This shall not never happen to you. The implication is, Peter, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to prevent you from going to the cross. Peter is trying to derail the mission to which Jesus responded with equally strong words. using Mark uses the same word. Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me. You would expect him to say, Simon, like that's your first name. Simon Peter? Wouldn't that what? 
Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on God's, the things of God, but man's. You expect Jesus to say, it's not exactly right, Peter. You might expect him to say, you're off base, Peter. You might expect him to say pretty much anything but this name-calling thing. What is this about? First, I want to make something abundantly clear. I want you to remember that the disciples never really did figure this suffering thing out until after the resurrection. It wasn't like Peter was standing there intentionally trying to stand in the way of God's redemptive plan of the ages. Remember, he had the same view of the Messiah that everybody else had, political, military leader, and there was no place in their understanding at this point for a suffering servant. So when Jesus said, I must go and be killed, Peter says, basically, over my dead body. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter didn't quite have it figured out when the Soldiers came to get Jesus and arrest him in a mighty flourish. Peter pulls out a kitchen knife and cuts off Malchus's ear, trying to derail the cross. But I'm going to suggest it was out of intense love and loyalty to Jesus that he said what he said and did what he did. Be that as it may, it was still wrong. In fact, Jesus said, it is satanically inspired. Get behind me, Satan. Now, why would he say that? Because whether by oppression or influence, Peter was being used by Satan to derail the redemptive plan of the ages. Peter was saying the same thing that Satan was saying back in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus... I will give you all of the kingdoms of this world if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus, the same thing to Satan. Go away, Satan. Satan was offering Jesus the glory of kingship without the cross. You are the Christ. Now assume your rightful place as king without the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Same spirit that inspired Satan now inspired Peter. And Jesus calls it for what it is. Brings us to our conclusion. So let me circle us around back to the beginning. Is all of this bad news? Of course. On this side of the cross, we understand is not bad news at all. Death, burial, and resurrection, that's... That's the gospel. That's good news. Jesus came to die to bear our sins in his body on the cross, which is why we display the cross, sing the cross, wear the cross, glory in the cross everywhere. Without the cross, there would be no good news. There would only be bad news. There would be eternal damnation. If Peter had succeeded in derailing Jesus, we'd be in big trouble. So would Peter. The cross and all it represents becomes the way of salvation, the way of eternal life for us. This is incredibly good news. And then we remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life. I'm, I'm going. I must go to lay down my life. This is good news for the sheep. I have other sheep. Not of this fold, aren't Jews, so I must bring them also. We can all be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one, listen, no one 
chief priests, the elders, scribes, Pontius Pilate, here, they don't take my life. I lay it down. And I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. He did. Laid it down for you and for me. He must go. He did. Two final thoughts then from this passage. First, God's plan of salvation does not correspond to man's way. If, if, if we were doing the planning, if I were doing the planning, we would have come up with something else. Don't, don't you figure? That's what, that's what Peter was doing. No, no way, Lord, you will not die. To which Jesus responded, you're thinking man's thoughts, not God's thoughts. We would have come up with another way which is exactly what world religions do today. I don't like God's way. Don't, don't know this. Don't like this Jesus. Don't like the cross. I'll come up with my own way. But the fact of the matter is there is no other way to reject. Listen. To reject the cross of Christ is to reject the only way to God. We cannot come to Christ on our own terms. We must come God's way, and His way is the way of the cross. It's good news. Hmm. Part two next week, because the final thought we learn from this passage is this. There is pain in God's saving process. To provide eternal salvation, redemption, purification for all. Humanity cost Jesus his life. Next week we'll see that Jesus, the path that Jesus calls his disciples to follow, and it is the path of the cross. I'll tell you right now, I didn't say this in the first two services, I'm going to say it right now. If you're looking for a motivational speaker, if you want to come here on Sundays and feel really good about Christianity and feel really good. I can go out there and work hard and I can line my pocket with money and I can get rid of all problems. You are coming to the wrong place. I'm not going to lie to you. Because the way of Christianity as taught in the Word of God is the way of the cross. And if Jesus bore His cross, so will we next week. Let's stand for prayer.